Okay, we are going to walk through Revelation chapter 13 tonight, or as much as it was we can cover until it's time to stop, which is fine. We'll come back to it next week. Um, and I am 100% fine just doing a dead stop. This is part of why I prefer to cover these chapters on a Wednesday night than a Sunday morning. Sunday morning, ideally, if it's going to be a halfway decent sermon, you need to tie it in enough of a bow so everybody knows what's it mean and what am I supposed to go do with it. Wednesday night, if I've got to just drop you off a cliff, we'll just drop off a cliff and we'll come back next week. That's the way, a little bit easier. As we come to Revelation 13, if, if you're unfamiliar with it, then, then let me just catch you up. If you're familiar with it, Revelation 13, we're going to be introduced to two different beasts that are in service to the dragon. Now, if you were here Sunday, we know the dragon is Satan, so we've got two different beasts that are in service to Satan, and, and it's in this chapter that we see the fulfillment of things that we've seen in Daniel, uh, Daniel this Last year, as we walked through that, the little horn, we've the man of lawlessness, the one that John will call in 1 John, the Antichrist, capital A. Now, there is all sorts of speculation. This is not even an exhaustive list, nor all the names I read today, but this was just out of one book of, of historically people's most popular guesses as to who the Antichrist is. Nero, Domitian, Constantine. Charlemagne, Napoleon, Martin Luther is in the Reformer. That's probably from a Catholic viewpoint. Mussolini, Stalin, Hitler, Gorbachev. That's obviously strange since Gorbachev brought down the Soviet Union. Jimmy Carter, Henry Kissinger, Ronald Reagan, Anwar Sadat, Saddam Hussein, Barack Obama, Pat Robertson. And of course, if you were one of the famous reformers, as in Luther or Calvin or uh, the famous Scottish reformer, John Knox, or even John Wesley and Roger Williams, John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church in England, Roger Williams, uh, who at one time established the first Baptist church in America, they all thought the Antichrist was the Pope. So here's my point. There's a lot of God-fearing, smart people that I do know for a fact are in heaven with Jesus who got it wrong in their guesses. So that's why I'm not going to give you a guess tonight. We're going to just study what Scripture says with clarity and do the best we can with what is apparent. And so I invite you to turn with me, Revelation chapter 13. Revelation 13. Now, this comes on the heel, uh, just refresher from Sunday, this comes on the heel of, of what John sees in chapter 12. And you'll remember in chapter 12, he looks up in the heavens and he sees a sign. And at first he sees a woman who's pregnant with child, who's in deep labor pain. She's, she's clothed with the sun and the moon and a, and a, cr a crown of 12 stars. We know from the, the clear imagery in the Old Testament, this woman is representative of the Jewish people of specifically the, the Old Testament nation of, of Israel through whom, the, the, the seed of Abraham through whom the Messiah is to come. Uh, we see that there's a child who's born, and this child is born, he's caught up to God, and, and he reigns and rules the world with an iron scepter in fulfillment of the Messianic prophecy of Psalm chapter 2. We know this child is Jesus, the Christ, God's Messiah. Now, in between those two, we, were, we saw a in between signs one and three, we saw a second character appear, and that was a great red dragon who we learn later on is, is in fact the serpent of old, Satan himself. And we see that the results of, of the, the work of Jesus, his life, death, 
uh, resurrection and ascension into heaven, the, the work of that results, uh, in fact, one of the ways it could be translated when it says, and then I saw there was war in heaven, is that uh, um, then I saw that there had to be war in heaven, that basically what Jesus accomplished forced into motion this war in heaven between Satan and his angels, we'd call them demons, between Michael and the other angels, and, and Satan is, and his forces are unable to prevail. They're never able to prevail. It's not that they lost that day. They'd lose any day they came about, and he is cast out of heaven. And then you see the cry of praise, because no longer can Satan stand there and accuse the brethren uh, of sin before God. Instead, he's cast out. And we, we see when he's cast out, it's heaven rejoices, but then there's this lament, a woe to you, earth, because Satan has now the dragon has come down to you filled with rage because he knows his time is short. And you walk through the rest of that passage and you see that the first intention of the dragon down on earth is to go after with all of his viciousness, the woman. But the woman has been hidden in the wilderness in a place prepared for her by God, the, the, wing, the two wings of a great eagle, which is imagery back to Exodus language and, and many times in scripture, the imagery of Eagle's wings with God as a sign of his protection, his deliverance, his preservation, that she, the, the woman is preserved in the wilderness. It'll speak about 1,260 days or uh, time, times, and half a times, which is out of Daniel. We know that to be three and a half years. We know that the serpent even pours out uh, water to, to, to go out and flutter out, and, and the earth, there's this miraculous deliverance of the woman. The whole point is God protects and preserves the woman. Now, I didn't elaborate it on Sunday. I think we looked at it when we walked through chapter 12 in detail several weeks back, uh, but simply put, there are some who would say that that woman is always uh, the Jewish people. There are some that would say that once you get on the other side of Satan's fall to earth, that the woman would, would it transitions, and it's, it's both the righteous Jewish people as well as the church. Uh, I would tend to say there seems to be a distinction that at least it's the righteous Jewish people because it talks about that Satan cannot get to her. So instead, it makes this statement. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who are keeping the commandments of God and holding to the testimony of Jesus. Well, who are the rest? The first members of the church, who were they? Jewish believers. Who are the rest of the children? Us, the church. That's by and large throughout the last 2,000 years been dominated in gross majority by Gentiles, hence why many will call this season of church history the age of Gentiles. So now we've got this setup. Satan, Satan's lost. Jesus has won. Satan's been thrown down to earth. He's in a fit of rage, and he, he is doing everything he can to come after and destroy the people of God. And then we read this, and the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore, just the dragon stood on the sand of the sea. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. Now, let me pause there. If, if you have studied your Bible, if you said, I'm going to study the Bible in, in the order that God wrote it, then this is going to ring some bells. And if you have a really good memory and you remember everything I've preached on Sundays this year, you'll know exactly what we're talking about. It's okay if you don't, because I don't remember what I preached last Sunday because I haven't slept since then. Kidding, I have actually slept since then uh, in, a, in a rare deal. We actually had our first full night of sleep last night. Praise God, in a week, it was wonderful. Uh, but here's what this reminds you of. Daniel chapter 7. If you want to, if you're going to try to keep up, I would encourage you, maybe just slide a finger in Daniel 7, because we're going to go back and forth a little bit. Much of what we see is built on 
uh, stuff in Daniel 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11. Daniel 7, Daniel's having, if you remember, it's the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. He's having a, a dream, and this is what it says. Verse 2, I was looking in my vision by night. Behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. And if you'll remember, the first beast is a lion with wings. It represents Babylon, regal, majestic, powerful, mighty, vicious. The second one is a, is a bear that's got one side higher than the other. It's the Medo-Persian Empire, strong, fierce, mighty, powerful, tramples underneath rules with an iron fist. Then you'll see the third beast is a, is a four-headed, four-winged leopard, uh, which is symbolic for the Greek empire, which moves with a fierceness and swiftness like that of the leopard, uh, uh, ultimately divides into four kingdoms, since four heads. And then you get to this fourth beast, verse seven. After this, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful, terrifying, extremely strong. It had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that went before it. And it had 10 horns. And while I was contemplating the horns, behold, another little horn came up among them. And three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it, and behold, this horn possessed eyes like that of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. So we have already before seen in Scripture imagery of, of a prophet seeing a sea. And you'll remember that in Scripture, the image, a sea can be literal. Some have said, well, he's seeing something literally come out of the Mediterranean Sea. That's the sea there in Israel. Uh, many times in Scripture, there is a symbolism with sea, especially in prophecy. And the symbolism, when you think of the, the, the wild sea, what comes to mind? It's, it's chaotic. There's waves raging. It is uninhabitable. It's not a place safe for humans. I mean, well, I'm a good swimmer, Pastor. That's great. Let's go drop you off in the middle of the Atlantic and let's see if we see you at this side of heaven. None of you would take that bet. Michael Phelps wouldn't take that bet. There is a danger, a chaos, a turmoil, hence the imagery of the sea. The sea represents the chaos, the, the depravity that is a part of humanity. Out of the sea come these beasts. Out of the depravity, the chaos, the wickedness of humanity. Sea also implies separation. Now, that may not be as major of, a, of an imagery for us today, right? Because you can hop on a plane and jump the pond and go to England. But if you and I were living even just a, a hundred years ago, and you've got, you've got a, a family member living in England, and you want to go see him, that's not just hop on a plane and you're there in eight hours. And you spend a week and you come back. That's you take a week riding on a boat that may or may not make it depending on the route it takes. There's separation, the sea implies. There's separation, humanity from God, hence because of and by their wickedness. And so we've seen this imagery out of the sea, out of the, the chaos and wickedness of humanity come these beasts. And all of a sudden we see again, I saw a dragon, Satan now standing on the sand of the seashore, and I see a beast coming out of the chaos, the wickedness, the depravity, the separation of mankind. And look, notice this beast. First thing, having 10 horns. We've even seen that before. We just saw that with the fourth beast. Now, you'll remember the fourth beast in Daniel 7 is both, both has happened and not yet. It represents the Roman Empire, which is past tense for us, but at no point did the Roman Empire ever become ten co-ruling kingdoms and, or, or rulers. 
That points to something that's yet to be tied to this beast. Saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. And on each of the horns were ten diadems, or, or a royal crown. Now remember, horn can refer to a ruler. It's a symbol for, for power, for might, uh, for, uh, for uh, power and might. When you come to a crown on a diadem, would be specific. And, and the reason to be specific there is the, the crown that we wear that we are given by Christ is not a diadem, it's a stephano, it's a victor's wreath. There's, there's a difference in the kind of crown. A diadem is a royal crown. It represents a, a, a governing authority, a, a royal power. So each one of the horns possessing a crown is a reference to some kind of political power, authority. It says seven heads on this beast. And remember, heads represent personality, intelligence, individuals. It could be seven kings or it could be seven kingdoms. And on each of its heads were blasphemous names, blasphemous names, that was speech that despises, taunts, reproach, even curses. It was interesting uh, what some said about the idea of blasphemy is that when, when humans engage in blasphemy, that, that more than any other act of man, when, when mankind creature speaks despisingly, tauntfully, reproachfully, even curses God. It is the ultimate flipping of the created order where the creature blasphemes the creator. It's absolutely absurd. It's more than simple failure to believe in God and endorse his program in ways. It's an active repugnance and even opposition to God. So this beast is, is not just simply straying in its way. It is actively hostile and opposed to God. Now, Having said that, what, what's all the symbolism here? Well, I want, I want you to turn with me because here in a couple chapters, John's going to see this beast again, and, and interestingly enough, Revelation actually gives us a little bit of interpretation, which if you want to know proper Bible study, you should always allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. So that's what we're going to do. So turn over with me to Revelation 17. Revelation 17. And we're going to pick up in... Verse 3, and he, being an angel, carried me, John, in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. Okay, so right there, we're seeing the beast we just saw come out of the sea. Now we're seeing this beast appear again. Now we're going to skip a few verses. Look down with me at. Uh, verse 7, and the angel said to me, why do you wonder? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast that carries her, which has seven heads and ten horns. So we're talking about the beast from the sea from chapter 13. It says this, the beast you saw was and is not and is about to come out of the abyss and go to destruction. Now, let me pause there for a second. It's an interesting little statement. Now, there's Plenty of good theological debate on exactly what is meant there. There's two things, though, that are fairly certain and obvious. And we'll see this even more as we go back to chapter 13. And if we get through it all tonight, we'll see it all tonight. If not, we'll see it all by the end of next week. Who, do you notice, does that phrasing, the beast, the beast you saw was and is not and is about to come up and go to destruction, does that sound like a parody of anything? What's it sound like a parody of? Jesus, who was and is and is to come. 
there is a parody, a statement, a, a, a statement of, uh, of, like Jesus is the one who is and was and is, who was and is and is to come. And here the beast is like a, and I don't, a parody who was and is not and, and is to come out of the abyss, but where Jesus is to come and reign, he is to come and go to destruction, this beast. Not only that, but there is a sense in which, and you'll, you'll uh, remind you, First uh, John, when, when John is talking about the Antichrist, he makes this statement. He, he draws two distinguishing. He says, there is coming a, a Antichrist, capital A, and that Antichrist, capital A, is not yet in the world. But then he says, but the spirit of the Antichrist is in the world. And the reality is when you look at, and we'll see this in a second further with the beast, when you look at world history, there have been many lowercase antichrists, both kingdoms and rulers, and they follow this pattern. They come up, and ultimately, they've all died out. And even the worst of what is coming will rise up and will burn out and die and not just burn out and die, it will be burnt out and slaughtered by the king, Jesus, faster than most any of the others in human history. So there's a sense in which not only is this statement attempting, is it a parody of the one true king, which is a clear contrast that is going to play from chapter 13 all the way through chapter 19 between Jesus, the true Christ, and the beast, the Antichrist. And Antichrist, by the way, just to we'll use that term, Antichrist, has there's two definitions to it. One's obvious, the, the opposer of Christ. That's obvious, we all get that. There's also, though, the, the, that preposition can mean the one who is in place of Christ. That's what the Antichrist is attempting to be, the one who's in the place of the ap- actual Christ. The one, the false Messiah who's seeking to replace the Messiah. Now look with me. The beast you saw was and is not and is not and is about to come out of the abyss and go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. Meaning those who are not, uh, those who are not saved, those who are not actually saved by grace through faith, when they encounter the beast, they are going to be caught in amazement by the deceptive, false, messianic nature of the beast. Hence, they will, be, they will wonder at who was and is not and, is, and will come. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are the seven mountains on which the woman sits. Now, we'll look at this more when we get there, uh, probably uh, in, in next calendar year, um, I won't elaborate all night, but, but the seven mountains are, are commonly believed to be Rome. Rome's the famous city of seven hills. Rome, for New Testament Christians, was the New Testament equivalent of Babylon, which is what is associated with the woman. So he says right here, the seven heads are the seven mountains on which the woman sits. So, so this, this beast that has seven heads, there's some way in which those seven heads are representative of Rome which is the new version of Babylon. But look, we don't stop there. And they are seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, one has yet to come. And when he comes, 
he must remain a little while. So it's not just that the seven heads are these seven hills in reference to Rome, it's that these seven heads are representative of seven different kingdoms. And he makes the statement that of those seven kingdoms, five have come, one is currently, and one is coming. Now, again, you can find all sorts of speculation and debate. The most obvious uh, or the most instant answer for that is you look at the kingdoms that have opposed. If, if the dragon is, is the personification in real world of Satan's opposition to God's people, well, interestingly enough, you can't, that, that, um, if you try to apply that to the Roman emperors of John's day, that, that math does not add up with Roman emperors. What it does add up, five were, who's the first major kingdom world power to oppose God's people? Egypt. Who's the next? Assyria. Who's the next? Babylon. Who's the next? Medo-Persia. Who's the next? Greece. Five were. Then comes Rome, who at the time of John's writing is and one that has yet to come, which we've already seen from Daniel. There's a coming world power comprised of 10 rulers or 10 nations co-ruling, among which the Antichrist rises up. There is a coming power, but it doesn't just stop there. Five were, one is, one is to come, and then look back with me. It says, this, says, the beast which was and is not is himself also an eighth and is one of the seven. That, what, what do you mean? Well, I, let me give you my best understanding. And I'm going to say that with saying, if one day you get before God and you, and you find out I'm wrong, I told you I'm going to give you my best understanding. Go back to Daniel for a second. It says that that fourth beast, which both was for us, for us past tense, Rome's come and gone, but is also to come. There is a sense in which there is a coming Roman-like empire that is made up of 10 co-ruling horns, either 10 kingdoms or, or 10 rulers. Honestly, it, it, we don't need to be dogmatic about it because most kingdoms, even ours, we don't have a king. But, but who, when you think of the United States of America, you don't think of all the senators and, and, and representatives. You think of the president. Most nations still associate with a single leader, so we don't have to be super dogmatic about, about what it is. Daniel says that there's 10, hence a seventh, and amongst those 10 comes the little horn. And the little horn disposes of three and rules over the others, which would make the beast both an eighth, because he does something new to those ten horns, at the same time he's a new version of, those, of that kingdom. So he's both an eighth, but of the seventh. Because it's not like he overthrows all ten and starts a whole new world order. He overthrows those who oppose him and uses that as his new world order. Does that make sense? It's okay. I'm going to end early and give you a chance to ask a question. Go, Pastor, that didn't make a lick of sense. Say it again. So he was an eighth, seventh, but here again, notice, but he goes to destruction. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings 
who have not yet received a kingdom, but they will receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. These have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast, which tells you that once the little horn of Daniel 7 rises up, he's going to overthrow three, either, either those three initially give their allegiance to him and then betray, or he kicks them out and replaces them. It says here that the ten horns, so go back, think, it says seven heads, this, this beast has seven heads and ten horns. The ten horns represent these ten end-time rulers or kingdoms who are going to give all their power, all their glory, all their authority. They're going to give it to the beast, the Antichrist. And in turn, he's going to give them whatever power they operate with. He, they're getting it from him, not on their own. So having seen that, we can flip back to to Revelation 13 and understand when it says that this is a beast with, with ten horns. Each one of the horns has a crown. We understand those ten horns are ten uh, co-ruling rulers, kingdoms. They represent collectively a seventh kingdom in the midst of which, the, the, in the midst of which, in the midst of which the Antichrist, the little horn of Daniel 7, will rise up and rule over them, becoming both the eighth ruler in and of himself, but of the seventh kingdom. And this ruler, the Antichrist, he is thoroughly wicked. Now look at how else it describes the beast here. And the beast which I saw, this is Revelation 13 two. The beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. Well, there's even more imagery out of Daniel 7. We saw the fourth beast in Daniel 7 represents Rome, but at the same time, part of the fourth beast represents a Rome that's yet to come, so we don't repeat the fourth beast. Instead, now we go in reverse order through the three predecessors, the three previous beasts in Daniel 7, and it describes the most fierce key distinguishing markers of each of those empires to the Antichrist, the leopard, fierce, swift, fast, feet like a bear, mighty, strong, doesn't just put down and conquer nations, but, but does it decisively, leaves no room for life. The mouth of a lion, fierce, regal, powerful, terrifying. If you've ever been to the zoo and heard the lions roar and you're not ready for it, you understand the terror. I mean, hence the language that's used even of Satan. He's a lion prowling around, a roaring lion. Now, I just give you another thought here. I think if, if this beast is like the leopard, understand that whenever the Antichrist, capital A, really does step on the scene, he will move with great speed in his conquering and rise to power. Give you more thoughts on that in a little bit if we make it there. If not, it'll be next week. But you see those aspects of each of those prior, and in the sense, he carries the wickedness of those prior kingdoms into him. But notice this this dragon is this beast is a little different. And the dragon, that's Satan, gave him, the beast, his power and his dominion and great authority. So all of a sudden, Satan, remember, Satan's a spirit being. Now, as a spirit being, uh, could, could, could he appear in such a way that we see him? Well, from what I can tell, yes, right, it's an angel of light, appears with angel of light. But, but a spirit being doesn't, doesn't occupy this physical world. Well, what is the beast? 
The beast, Satan gives him his power, his authority, his rule. The beast now becomes, in a sense, Satan incarnate in the physical world. I said, I saw one of his heads, one of the seven heads, as if it had been slain, as if it had been slaughtered, and his fatal wound was healed, and the whole earth was amazed after the beast. They worshiped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like the beast, and who is able to wage war with him? Here's what else it says about about the beast. It says that these seven heads, which you remember from Revelation 17, represent in some way they represent Rome, in some way they represent seven kingdoms, five which have been, one, well, six for us, which have been, one which is coming. It says one of those seven heads as if slain and had his fatal wound healed. Now, if, if you've, and if I remember right, it's been a long time and I didn't make it all the way through him, but I did make it long enough for this. If I remember right, in the Left Behind series, the Antichrist in the Left Behind series is actually assassinated and rises back to life. And that is one way to understand that. I will give you the challenge I have with that is the power to, to raise a dead body to life is a power in Scripture God and God alone possesses. God is life. He is the author of life, and only God can raise the dead to life. Satan is the antithesis of life. So I, I don't necessarily think that language is referencing the Antichrist being assassinated and rising from the grave. Remember, if we take Revelation 17, then the head is referring to a kingdom. So it's possible it could be a kingdom we all thought was dead that rises back at the end of days, aka a Rome. But I'll tell you what I think is clear. That we can speculate. This is what is clear. When it said the head was as if slain and the wound had been healed, those are the same words used to describe the lamb who was slain and lives forevermore. What is being stated clearly by, the, by John here in Revelation is that this beast is, is, is going even further. If Jesus was and is and is to come, and this beast was and is not and is coming up for destruction, Jesus is the one who was slain and is alive forevermore. This is the one who is as if slain and seems healed. A false Messiah, an anti-Christ, a parody of Jesus in every way. And in whatever way this false Messiah demonstrates a coming back to life, it is going to catch and grab the attention of the masses of the world. They're amazed. They're, 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 they're transfixed by it. Now, the question here before we move on is, so who is the beast? We've seen the full description now that Revelation 13 is going to use in describing the beast. Uh, best I can tell you, some will, you've got kind of two probably major polarized positions in, in that, that are relatively safe. One is going to see the beast, especially after you see some of the stuff that we saw in Revelation 17, it's gonna see the beast not as an individual person, but as, as a kingdom, as a governance, as a kind of a corporate entity. 
The other side, which most of us are going to be more familiar with, is to see the beast exclusively as an individual person. The in-between is it's likely a smidge of both. Here's what I mean. When I say Hitler, what do you think? Nazi. When I say Nazi, what do you think? Hitler. You think both corporate government and its ruler who is some total of it all. So that said, I think from the weight of the rest of Scripture, we know the little horn seems singular uh, in Daniel. We know uh, Paul will use the term in 2 Thessalonians, the man of lawlessness. So by no means hear me say, I do think this is going to be an individual. But I think all of the imagery given to the beast here implies it's, it's that this individual comes with a much bigger uh, array of something corporate, of something government that goes with it. This is the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, spoken of in 2 Thessalonians 2. This is the Antichrist whose spirit is already at work in the world. This is the Antichrist of 1 John 2. This is the little horn of Daniel 7. This is the, the uh, Antiochus epiphanies to come of Daniel 9 and, and 11. This is Satan incarnate, Satan's tool on the earth. And here's the result of what he does. They worshiped, the people of earth worshiped. Now, ultimately, they're worshiping Satan. It says they worshiped the dragon because it's the dragon's power and rule and authority. This human being, and you'll remember, uh, I won't quote it, but if you, if you go back, there's two different times in Daniel, I think Daniel 8 and Daniel 11, where it describes the Antichrist, and it talks about the Antichrist having a cunning and a smoothness to his character, a persuasiveness to his power that is beyond what a normal human would have in and of themselves. Well, you see that here. Ultimately, those who worship, they're worshiping Satan because it's Satan's power that's been given to the beast. But they are actively worshiping the beast. And notice what they say. Who is like the beast? Who is able to wage war with him? Well, what does that sound like a parody of? Who is like our God? Who can stand against you in every way? You and I are called to worship God and God alone. Who is like our God? Who can stand against him? This is the cry of praise from the Old Testament. And look at the cry of praise that goes towards the false Christ. Who is like him? No one can stand against him. Which also means the praise of people for this leader is going to in some part come because the world recognizes nobody's got a shot against this guy. And I say, well, how is that? Well, I'll give you my speculation off of trying to put through uh, what, I, what we've seen in Daniel and, and behind-the-scenes study. It says in Daniel that the horn will rip out three of the horns by the root. The world's going to see some people decide, mm, we don't want to go along with this guy, and they're going to watch this guy lead a campaign that obliterates every one of those people. And the world's going to go, ooh, we're with this guy. And they're going to buy in, hook, line, and sinker, says, there was given to the beast a mouth speaking arrogant words, blasphemies, and authority was given for 42 months. Now, by the way, 42 months. 42 months is the same as three and a half years, is the same as 1,260 days, is the same symbolically as time, times, and half a times, which is a year, two years, and half a year. So when you hear those four, really those are interchangeable. We've seen those in Daniel. It seems to refer likely in the context here, if you're saying there's seven years of tribulation, Daniel's final week, 70th seven, there's seven years of tribulation. Daniel, uh, Daniel uh, 10 tells us that halfway through, sorry, Daniel 9, 
tells us halfway through tribulation, says this leader has made a covenant with Israel for seven years. Halfway through that covenant, he enters into the temple, he commits the abomination of desolation, and he unleashes a persecution on the Jewish people that is unparalleled in human history, which is an unbelievable statement. A persecution that, since all of us are living in our lifetime, will make October 7th look like child's play and a daily occurrence. Jesus warns of this, Matthew 24, the the abomination of desolation. Authority was given to him for 42 months. Arrogant words, blasphemies against God. And look at this statement. He opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme the name of God. That's the person and character of God. And his tabernacle, those who dwell in heaven. And the way the language is there, is is he literally blaspheming? Like, here's the guy who claims to be God, and he's going to blaspheme God and all those who are living in heaven? Yes. Also understand those who are living in heaven, there, there can be a dual reality of that. How does Paul describe our position in Christ right now? He says we are seated in the heavenly places. Are any of us seated currently physically in the heavenly places? No, we're seated in the MPB. And we praise God that the the air conditioning is working relatively fine. But yet in Christ, we're seated in the heavenly places. When it says he blasphemes God in his tabernacle, it's saying he's going to blaspheme and utter all sorts of of curse and and taunt and, and and awfulness against God and God's people, both in heaven and on earth. And not only is he going to speak boldly, it says it was given to him to make war with the saints, to overcome them. Not only that, an authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. He is going to conquer the whole world, not the whole known world, the whole world. And all who dwell on earth will worship him. So here's the program of the Antichrist. He's going to oppose God verbally, vocally. He's going to oppose God's people verbally, vocally. He is going to go after and wage war. We've seen this language uh, for the sake of time. I won't take you there tonight, but we've seen this language consistently throughout Daniel. He's going to wage war. The war against God's people is going to be so severe, it's as if he overcomes them. Jesus would say if those days were not cut short, that he would actually go through and wipe them all out. And it says that this ruler who is going to unleash a bold, blasphemous, genocidal campaign against both Jew and Christian will be worshipped and adored by every single human being on the world. He will be praised. You think you think, I'm making someone an assumption. Uh, there has been outrage as some have come out and tried to defend what Hamas did on October 7th. Understand, the whole world's going to defend every day being October 7th from the Antichrist. They're not just going to defend it, they're going to praise him as good, benevolent God. They're going to be so bought and hooked. You say, well, how are they going to be so bought and hooked? We'll see that next week, but look at this. All who dwell on earth will worship him except whose name was not written 
from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who had been slain. It says everybody in the world will worship except those whose name has been written in the Lamb's book of life. Make no mistake, Daniel 7, you see the small horn rise up, arrogant and boastful, it speaks against God. And then all of a sudden you see before the Ancient of Days, the Son of Man riding on a cloud of glory, and it says the books are open. We'll see as we move through Revelation, we're going to move through the end of Revelation, look at eternity on Sunday mornings, you'll see the books are opened. The Lamb's book, we saw in in chapter 5, the books are opened. So here's the reality, there is a book of life And the name of every person who has been, is being, and and will be saved is written. Now, that word written is critical here. That word written is a perfect tense verb. A perfect tense verb means this. All of those names were written down at one point in a single moment, and they remain written down forever indefinitely ever and ever and ever, meaning this, once that name is written, it cannot be unwritten. It cannot be erased, otherwise it couldn't be a perfect tense verb. Meaning this, when is your name written? When is a person's name written in the book of life? Well, depending on how you construct the book, this verse says before the foundation of the world. You know, what does that mean? Well, we, I can take a whole lot of ch- theological rabbit trails. Simply put this, this is, this is what is clear. If God knows everything and he's always known everything, then he knew before he created the, the very world, he knew what mankind would do. He also knew everybody who would respond to his offer of salvation. Hence, it's no struggle that those who would respond to the offer of salvation, our names have been written in the book of life from the foundations of the world. Now, you experience the benefits of that when you come at the moment of salvation. Which simply put means this, and I've heard this, some, some have trouble with this statement and it's new to me and, I, and I'm kind of unpacking it and that doesn't mean people are wrong for having trouble with it, it's just something I'm aware of, but I want to be clear. If you are actually saved, you cannot lose God's salvation. To lose God's salvation means you can do something to cross your name out of his book. Anybody in here think you got that capability? You know where his book is? You got the holy supernatural pen to erase the blood of Jesus? No. God does not save us by our faith. That's not how it reads. He saves us by his grace, which means your work has to be greater than his grace, which is impossible. His grace is greater than all our work. That's how it works. Now, you receive His grace through faith. It's the, only, it's the only tunnel through which His grace can come. And so the phrase that I think has been used a lot is once saved, always saved. And I think some have an issue with that because you see a lot of people who pray to prayer and once saved, always saved, and they don't love Jesus. Well, listen, once saved, always saved is true if truly saved. And there's a lot of people in our churches who are not truly saved. Praying a prayer, repeat after me, at Vacation Bible School does not save if it is not childlike faith, repenting of sin, and trusting Jesus as king. That's the reality. Hence, and Scripture tells us this, Jesus says on that day, there's going to be people who stand before me at judgment and go, Lord, Lord, 
I know the right words. We did this in your name. We did this. I don't just know the right words. I did church stuff. And I will look at them and say, depart from me. I never knew you. There are people who are going to die and stand before Jesus thinking they are Christians because of their work that aren't actually Christian. Jesus, the parable of the seeds. You remember the parable of the seeds? Seed gets scattered on the road. What happens to it? Boom, instantly picked up, taken. Lost as lost can be. Seed goes to good soil. What happens to it? Well, that's obviously the one for salvation. The seed goes in the good soil. It, it, it sprouts. It gathers roots. It goes up into a tree. That's obviously the one for salvation. But there's two others. You remember? There's two others. The thorns and the rocky ground, both of which show signs of life initially before, for varying reasons and varying ways, they get destroyed. It is possible to be in the church, to pray a prayer, and to have all of your faith be in yourself. It is possible to know the right words, to teach a Sunday school class, to serve in whatever, and not really be saved. It's possible because Scripture says it's a reality. And I've got news. The more that culture makes it unpopular to be a Christian, the more that kind of Christianity will fall away and look like apostasy. The believers in North Korea don't struggle with that issue. Because you don't profess Jesus unless you're willing to die tomorrow. So all this to say, and you say all of that, to say, because look, look what it says. Now, by the way, side note, I need to say this before I finish up here. That verse written in the book of Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world, um, there's actually another way to read it that's probably more precise. Everyone's name who is written in the book of life of the lamb who was slaughtered before the foundation of the world. Meaning not just this. Our name's not just written in the book, but it God created the world. And we know specifically from Scripture, it's Jesus that was the active one creating. Jesus created the world already knowing he'd take on flesh and go to the cross and bear the wrath of God. So do you want to know tonight if Jesus really does want an actual relationship with you? You can't spell it more clearly than that. How many of you, having not already done it, would go, you know what, if I'm going to follow through with this decision and it's going to mean that I, I bear the wrath of God for all eternity on myself, let me go ahead and follow through with that. None of us would do that even for ourselves. Jesus did it. He's the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. Now, here's why all this is important, that you understand his heart, that you understand what we looked at Sunday, that the lamb who was slain, it's by the blood of the lamb we overcome in the word of our testimony. Here's why it's important you understand that if you have truly placed faith in Jesus Christ, he has saved you in his grace. You say, well, pastor, how do I know if I've placed faith in Jesus Christ? Well, scripture says that the, 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 the guarantee of your salvation is the Holy Spirit living in you. Do you have the conviction of the Holy Spirit? And the guidance of the Holy Spirit? Do you have the Holy Spirit producing fruit in you? Not only that, I've heard it put this way. Just, just answer a simple question. If you stand before Jesus right now and Jesus says, why on earth should I let you into my kingdom? If your honest answer is, well, be, because I've done all these things, I've been a relatively good person, I've checked the boxes, well, maybe you need to examine your salvation. 
Listen, I, I struggle hard with perfectionism. I really do. I know I use that, but I'm, I do. I struggle hard. And that means for the enemy, there's an easy way to try to, over the course of my life, go, are you sure you're really saved? Look at all the ways you're imperfect. For all of that, there's never been a day since I was five and a half on August 14th, 1994, in response to the conviction of the Holy Spirit that I was a sinner separated from God and I needed Jesus. There's never been a day, no matter how perfectionistic I've been, where I've ever thought that the reason God should let me in is because I was good enough. There's no reason God should let me in. But he said that Jesus came and did what I couldn't do. And if I would recognize that he's Lord and I would trust him to save me, he'd take me in as his own. If that's still your posture, that's a sign you, you've had saving faith. That, that, that ought to be, because our, our, the posture of faith never changes. Once you bow the knee at Calvary, you don't ever change positions. So if you, well, how do I know if I'm bowed down? Well, just look, are you bowed down? Now I say that to say, here's why it's important you understand if I'm truly saved, there is security. Because look at what this is gonna say. If anyone has an ear to hear, let him hear. If anyone is for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. Now here's simply put, from the best of my study, it's a, it's a strange statement. And you will find many a godly people with different, different interpretations. But the best I can tell that statement is a statement of destiny, simply saying this, that as the Antichrist launches his campaign against God's people, there are some whose lives, are the way their days end is in martyrdom. And there's nothing they can do to get out of the martyrdom because that's the way their story ends, this side of heaven. Some, it'll end in captivity. And we know not every Christian's martyred because it says clearly that when the trumpets blare, there's some believers around who look up and see because they'll see the dead in Christ rise first. If you are not sure of God's glory and in his glory, his heart for you, and in his heart for you, what he's done in the shedding of the blood of Jesus, and in the security of when you place faith in the blood of Jesus, you will struggle to persevere. But if we, by biblical faith, set our eyes and understand those truths, then it doesn't matter if we're living in the days of a bad economy, a government most of us don't trust, prices that are way too high, a world that is at war more than it's been in any of our lifetimes, or whether we're living in the day where all of a sudden the abomination of desolation takes place in Jerusalem, it doesn't matter what the day's danger is. You and I will walk in persevering faithfulness by the grace of God. I read this this morning in my time with the Lord. Psalm chapter 3. This is right after Daniel is forced, Daniel, David is forced to flee the city, his life threatened by his own son, who through deceitful scheming words has won the hearts of the people and disposed David as king. David's life is under great threat. He says, O Lord, my adversaries have increased. Many rise against me. Many are saying of my soul, there's no deliverance for him and God. There's no hope. He's a dead man. 
But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. You're my glory and the one who lifts my head. I am crying to the Lord with my voice. He answered me from his holy mountain. You, Lord, here's what I recognize, Lord. You are my security. You are my glory. You are my comfort. And so I'm crying out with my voice. You answered me. Now, he didn't say what the answer is, but he shows the result. Look at verse 5. So I laid down and slept. I didn't stay up all night terrified for my life. Then stay up all night worried by all the stress that's coming in and out. I didn't, I didn't allow fear to control and drive. But I went to bed. I slept. And I woke up. For the Lord sustains me. So I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me. That kind of attitude of faith, that's the perseverance of the saints. And so here clearly took a different turn in terms of application as we come to the end tonight. The Antichrist will be the most wicked ruler and leader of the most wicked, oppressive government this world will ever see in its history. Comprehend that. That's a frightening reality. Yet, whether we live in the Antichrist day or whether we live today, We overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. And as bad as everything you've seen about the the beast of the dragon, do you remember what Revelation 17 said? He will be destroyed. Because the false Messiah is the false Messiah. The real Messiah. He will give him a short window And then he will come back riding on a white horse. And we'll either be behind him or in front of him, caught up to him. Depends on your view of the rapture and depends on whether you're alive or dead. But the point is, we're with the one riding on the white horse, watching as that beast gets thrown forever in a fiery lake of torment. That is hope and goodness. So let me stop there. Any real quick, it's right at seven, but all the choir folk have left. Any real quick questions someone wants to ask and get clarification on, provided it's about this tonight. Don't, don't go throw something out there like, what about the spirit that, what's, oh, John's not in here. I was going to ask John's favorite question about the spirit that, and the Lord's counsel that said, I'll go down there and deceive them. Oh, he is over there. Yeah, don't ask that question, John. Any question? Any clarification you need on anything from tonight? Well. Hey, real quick, I noticed in verse 6, it says he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God and his tabernacle. Any, uh, you know, a lot of people assume that there has to be a third temple built for the abomination of desolation to take place because that's where the seat of God is, but uh, scripturally there's two seats of God. One would be the tabernacle, right? The first, is it possible that this is, the Greek word is the same one used in the Septuagint for the tabernacle. What I'm saying is it possible that instead of a temple, a some kind of refashioned or reformed tabernacle could be something that he could go in and do the abomination of desolation? Would, would that be just uh, as good as doing it in the temple, I guess? I guess that's a possibility for where he can, uh, the question is, would, would, 
could the abomination of desolation be committed in just a, re, a redone tabernacle versus the rebuilt temple? Because technically the original seed of God and what God outlined Israel to create for his house was the tabernacle, not the temple. The temple is actually David's idea to do for God um, and God permitted. Um, I suppose that's a possibility. I think there, um, I, in all the study I, I, I've done, I have not seen that as an interpretation of verse 6. Um, I, the, the implication in verse 6 is tabernacle in the sense of God's dwelling place with his people. And there, is a, uh, there are some variants in the old manuscripts, and I, I, didn't, I didn't think we'd get down that far in the weeds, so I didn't write it down in my notes. Uh, you and I, I can, sh- I can show it to you, that basically the better rendering is essentially where it's not, it's not uh, against God and his tabernacle and those in heaven. It's against God and his tabernacle of those in heaven. That it's that that phrase tabernacle and those in heaven that that is a reference, it's the for simply speaking it's against God and all of God's people, because He dwells with His people and and then you can go further from there and go well, our our bodies the temple or you might say, uh, you could you could swap out tabernacle but that I, I did your question is a valid question I just didn't see any of that in any of the stuff that I've read through, um, but I found some more obscure sources to get and read through so who knows I might find it. I was going to ask you, I've heard the preacher once say that the scripture refers to during these times as earth dwellers, or those who dwell on the earth, and his viewpoint was whenever it referenced the earth dwellers, it was all the unsaved, and that saved people would not be there at that moment, that they could still be saved when all of this starts, but that the dwell the people that dwell on the earth were all the unbelievers, do you? Yeah, in the book of Revelation, there are several times where it uses the term, those who dwell on earth, and when that term is used, it is referencing lost humanity. It's not referencing lost humanity in the sense that um, only people on the earth are lost, and some, obviously, that logically, that wouldn't make sense. If, if a lost person in the tribulation comes to faith in Christ, they, they still have to endure during the tribulation. As a, as a believer, otherwise you would have no believers getting martyred during the tribulation. I think what's, what is designed there in the book of Revelation is a contrast, that those who are lost, they're dwellers of earth. Those who are saved are people of heaven. So it's less about their physical location and more a descriptor of their lostness versus their security as God's people with the presence of God is more so the idea throughout there. But the guy you heard it from is probably smarter than me and better studied. So take my word with a grain of salt on that. Anybody else? All right, well, the question of how does such a wicked ruler so joyfully get the world to go along, we'll answer next week because this is only one of two beasts. There's another beast that's key to this beast's power and worship and also to the persecution of God's people. And that's the one that'll get us into all the crazy wild weeds like 666 and the mark of the beast and all the theories. By the way, did you know that, uh, that for a long time there were people who believed the mark of the beast was your social security number? I learned that one today. Which if that's the case, well then every American's messed over and excluded from the kingdom of heaven. Uh, no, we'll get into all that next week with the false prophet, and, um, and uh, we are, I'm excited, we got Christmas concert Sunday, and then we are going to, um, I never, by the way, this is just so y'all know, and I'll, I'll wrap this up here, I never, um, there's this joke 
when I was in youth ministry about how like youth pastors, they all want to take their kids through a dating series or a revelation series. And so you know the two series I never took any of my kids through, dating series or revelation series? Um, I really just, we went to Revelation primarily because as we came to the 50th anniversary of the church, I think this letters to the seven churches are a great, those are great epistles to allow God to examine our hearts as individuals in church. What I was caught by was as we then worked through some of it on Wednesday nights is how I sensed the Lord spur my heart that there was more passages that needed to be dealt with on Sunday mornings and not just on Wednesday nights. So we've done Revelation 4 and 5, we've done 7, we've done 12. So we've got Christmas concert this week, and then what I'm going to do, we will finish out the middle chapters here on Wednesday nights, because like I I just prefer a little more laid back where I, where I, I don't have to wrap it in a nice, clear bow. Um, uh, but on Sunday morning, starting week after next, we're going to pick up with Revelation 19 and deal with the last three chapters of the book on Sunday morning all together as a congregation, because that's our hope. That's our hope. That there's coming a day for those of us in Christ when that nail-scarred hand that has my name on it is going to take, take his hand and he is going to permanently wipe every sorrowful tear off my eye. And that's our hope. Yet you know what? I told Dad, I said, I feel like I've got to do it. I said, I've been a Christian almost 30 years. I've been in ministry for 12 or 13. I've been in church since I was conceived. And I said, outside of the one time I preached a sermon from Revelation 19, I've never heard anybody preach those chapters in church. So we're going to do it. We're going to walk through it, and it's going to be good. And we're going to have some hope as we finish this year and start the next year. So uh, let me pray, and I appreciate you being here, church family. Appreciate and covet your prayers for us. We're slowly... I think Bethany and the kids are are doing relatively well. It, it's I've got a little bit more to go, but I'm not contagious. So we appreciate your prayer for us. It's been a wild. Last night was truly the first night of full sleep Jesse has had in over a week. So it's praise God. Uh, it was good. Um, Jesus, we just adore you. You're worthy. God, ultimately, there is a battle of worship that is taking place. That Satan, when he puts all of the fullness of his power incarnate and unleashes the full fury of his plan, it is all to grab worship for himself. Because, Lord, there is only one in all creation who is worthy of worship, and it is you. So, Father, may you continue to refine and grow each of our hearts to day by day more deeply trust you more deeply love you, and more purely worship you as your sons and daughters and together as a church family. Lord, because as bad and tough as the days are, and as bad and tough and worse as the days will at some point get, it is a good day to be your child and to be about your will. Because no matter what office, even in the days of tribulation, the beast may take. The best he can do is sit on an earthly chair that will perish. You and you alone sit securely on the throne.
So Jesus, may we live in light of that security and hope. It's in your name I pray. Amen.